This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Well, I guess it's been a while since we had one of those superlative struggles to describe Erling Braut Haaland. Five goals before the hour mark as he just kept kicking it in the goal. For the rest of the game, he careered around the pitch like an unhinged wildebeest, but with a good touch for Gnu and Leipzig had absolutely no answers. City did take the lead with a penalty for one of those handballs that will have IFAB HQ popping champagne while the rest of us wonder how we ever got here. But it would be a brave pundit to suggest City wouldn't have managed it even without an assist like that. Elsewhere, Serie A's decent Champions League continues. They might as well have just played the seven minutes injury time in Porto as Inter held on to get the draw they needed. We'll join everyone else in saying they couldn't, could they, as Liverpool go to the Bernabeu with a three-goal deficit. Philippe has serious things to tell us. We'll try to remember to mention Will Wall and hopefully get to a crucial discussion about fonts. All that, plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Dan says this. This is the lineup. All gas, no breaks. Filippo Claire, welcome. <laughs> what a start. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you. Bonjour, ça va. Hello, Nader Manoha. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Hello, Lars Sivertson. It's not the first time I've been described as all gas, Max. You're familiar with this? <laughs> Phil says, is Nadem phoning this pod in, considering he's currently using up his insights as the number one pundit? On BT Sport, everyone looked cold except for you, Naden, which is because you have a warm heart, right? No, it's not that reason, actually. I was freezing. I was absolutely freezing. It's just I forgot my gloves. So uh, unfortunately, oh, no. I had to live that nightmare. sort of nightmare. But, you know, I did I did my bit. But don't expect to see me too often on your TV screens, especially on Champions League nights. But still, here we are. I mean, is, it, is, is there a new etiquette, you know, like maybe you should be wearing uh, gloves and a snood? <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm... Th- not to insult myself, but I'm kind of built for just like radio. So I didn't have anything to wear. <laughs> so, somebody say you're on TV and it's this. It's like, I, I don't know how to do this. Whereas for those guys, what do you mean? Do you mean you're too big for coats or you just don't, you just don't own that? This idea of having a smart coat and smart trousers and smart yeah. shoes was something which I retired along with the rest of my career. You know, I don't expect to be living that sort of like life now, yet still here I am <laughs> trying to figure it out. And just so we're clear. So the, most of the people on TV have got really nice like designer items and so on and so forth. I bought some shoes yesterday. I've got I had a pair of 68 pound Clarks on and it felt nice. like a lot to be spending it spending that much on shoes and the way I was. So that's who I am and I'm more than happy to continue in that way. Absolutely phase. delighted that we have chanced upon the the biggest tight ass of the former Premier League footballers you know <laughs> swimming in money. But you know, but anyway, anyway, Blank says, when will Manchester City find a way of getting the best out of a player like Har- Haaland, 33 and 25 for Erling Haaland in the Champions League. A new record for quickest player to reach 30. Uh, it was held by Ruud van Nistelrooy, who scored 30 and 34. Uh, one of three players to score five in a Champions League game after Messi and uh, Luis Adriano. 39 for the season, beating Manchester City's all-time record for amount of goals scored in a single season, which has stood since 1929 and was held by Tommy Johnson, not the Aston Villa <laughs> Tommy Johnson, um, uh, who wore, who played in a shirt, a button-up shirt and some really tremendous massive shorts and it's only March, he could play another 15 games this season Um, 
I don't know what what I mean. We like what do you even say? Like I mean, who's getting I, I the Barry what, question? Who's yeah. getting the Barry question? <laughs> you can get it, Lars. Nah, Alan Holmes. No, I tell you, okay, I tell you, I won't. Okay, I won't ask a Barry question. I'll say what I thought interesting about this Lars was classic centre forward goals, but it actually felt like this was his best game in terms of all round play. It's a good point. He was really aggressive. He was chasing a lot. I mean, that's what the second goal comes from, him closing down the goalkeeper, which he did. I certainly felt like he was doing that slightly more times than we've seen in other games. He does It's he does really like this competition. It isn't just a thing. You know, he, he always has had his eyes on the Champions League, famously drove around in Salzburg listening to the Champions League anthem in his car, which does make me think when the City fans, uh, when the sort of ritual booing of the Champions League anthem happens before the game, that makes Ali Holland sad. I mean, it's one of his favourite songs. He really likes that song. He shouldn't be booing it. Uh, but, but no, he was, um, he, wa- he was incredible. And I think this stuff about him being a tap-in merchant and stuff, it just really makes me laugh because it, it, it implies that other players just decide not to score loads of tap-ins. Like the idea that like Neil Mopé has just made an ethical stance and gone, no, I am Mopé. <laughs> like I will not score the tap-ins. Like this is just, it's not something that players just decide not to do. Just realize I probably shouldn't do the Cod Frenchman's feedback on the podcast. It seems slightly offensive. Um, it's, it's about, um, I thought it was very noticeable in one of his post-match interviews, that very good chat he had with the CBS lads, and when they asked him about his game, and he, he, talked about, he talked about having missed chances, which is kind of weird, after scoring all those goals. Not just that, but also specifically started going through the incidents where he should have done something slightly different. And I think that's very typical of him. He doesn't... He's not like a striker who just wanders around out there with like the theme from the Magic Roundabout up inside his head. Like he, he is thinking about where he's positioning himself, where the next chance is going to fall, where he has to move. Uh, so there is a reason why all these tappings falls to him because he's incredibly conscious of of how he moves and where he positions himself on the field. Um, Nadim, you asked him which his favourite goal was afterwards, um, and. To be fair to him, he couldn't remember them. And I'd sort of the same, when there are that many goals, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to, uh, to, to remember? Yeah, I can't say I can mention that from experience because I've never scored five. In fact, <laughs> I did score five goals. I'd say that back, actually. My very first academy game for Man City, I scored five goals against Blackpool at the Armitage Centre in Manchester. When I was 10 years old. And I don't remember all those as well. So I guess myself <laughs> and Erling were in a similar sort of position. But it was, um, as Lars was saying, I think it was, it was such an incredible performance. And... For Man City as well, they were so very much on the front foot. You know, they didn't just sit back at all. They were really aggressive with their press, aggressive in their style of play. And, you know, we tried to sort of not coax him into it, but the second goal was my favourite. And I think in some ways, from everybody from the outside, it felt that way as well because of the fact they just scored. So at this point, your team, like you can just, most teams will just sit back, but then instead he presses one guy, presses a second guy, Presses the goalkeeper, and I think it probably could have been a foul against him on the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. But when it's not given, and then before you know it, Akanji then just punts one forward. Haaland gets it down and heads it down nicely to De Bruyne. He whacks a ridiculous shot off the crossbar. And then who's there jumping six feet over the crossbar to head it down is Erling Haaland. That's the last thing you need when you're playing away from home against a side with someone that mm-hmm. good. Like Leipzig would have thought, let's just have a second. But then instead... That there's another goal that's gone in. I think it was, um, it was a great performance. I think his link-up play was really good. I think the effort that he was putting in was great. And that thing about, you know, tap-ins, I think it was the goal for the hat-trick where somebody kicked it off him. Mm. He went to the near post and the ball went over his head. The two people that were then with him were just watching the ball, but he went to try and chase the ball down. 
And that sort of instinct there, you can try and teach people to try and go in the right areas. But for him, it seems to come naturally. And that's ultimately why he scores so many goals, because there'll be other strikers who think, oh, I wish I had chances like that. We don't see the game the same way that he does. And technically, you can be better than him. You can improve and so on and so forth. But he just has a feel for where the ball's going to drop. And it seems a really dumb thing to sort of describe. But some players have it and some players do not. And for him to have it at the age that he's at now, like just just imagine what the rest of his career is going to look like. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, in cricket, when somebody hits a six in T20, there's a song being played, you know. And I'm starting to wonder yesterday, because I was actually, I'd switched off the sound so I could watch both games, you know, without concentrating on one because of the commentary. And I was thinking, I could hear in my brain, I was thinking when Holland starts accelerating, I was wondering if in the stadium the PA shouldn't play something like the sound of uh, uh, horses galloping and, and neighing <laughs> and so forth. And and then and when he scores, I don't know what you would do. I mean, I don't know uh, an explosion or something like that. He was it's extraordinary because this uh, kind of sixth sense he has of where to position himself. Usually, you get that in some players like Trezeguet had it, Inzaghi had it, Gerd Müller had it, Just Fontaine had it, but they didn't. They weren't one meter ninety five. And they didn't have necessarily the technique that he also has. And they were not pressing like he does. So it's a kind of weird, I don't know. I mean, it's like as if somebody has assembled all these elements. I was going to say like Mr. Potato Head, which is not very, very nice for him. But <laughs> no. uh, these, these elements that not you really a, not It's necessarily... not a superhero, is he? Mr. Potato Head is not a superhero. It's not, you know, build well, the ultimate. It's not building the in, ultimate in, potato. In his, dreams, he, you know? in his dreams, he is. In his dreams, he is. But so you've, you put together elements of the game which are not supposed to coexist. And in some way, they've managed to stuff this huge structure with all these skills and... Um, I don't think we've ever seen the like of him before. Seriously. Which, yeah, which, Lars, which is interesting for two reasons. When you see him play like that, you think, why doesn't he do that every week? And when you see City play like that, you think, how is it possible to even suggest they're not as good as they were last year? Well, listen, there, there have, I mean, there have been games where it hasn't been working as well as it did last night. That, that, that's just a fact now. It's possible that RB Leipzig would maybe want that one back. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't good from them. Uh, the way they approached the game, you could accuse Leipzig of lacking intensity in the press and stuff. But being at the stadium and I sat very high up, so I got the sort of sort of tactical analysis view of things. And you can just see City just moving the ball around so well that that Leipzig just couldn't get near him. I mean, they did such an amazing job creating passing angles for each other all the time and just moving the ball. So there's you no. Know, Leipzig press more. It's like what the ball is always moving. There's no one to press. It, 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 was, it was incredibly difficult for them, and it, it gave it sort of gave Holland better conditions to, to work, I suppose. Another sort of, I mean, Philippe has invoked Mister Potato Head. I feel, I feel another sort of unflattering comparison is when you watch the sort of nature documentaries, the sort of uh, the sort of Attenborough ones. Sometimes you get the sort of a slightly strange looking animal. That turns out it's just incredibly specialized for its environment. So it, it's, it, it looks a bit odd or something, but it's just incredibly good at one or two things, which is what it needs to survive. And, and Holland is like that, because I think we've had a few tweets on that, that he's actually a weirdly incomplete footballer. He's, I mean, the, you, if you put him in central midfield, I'm not sure that would work out really well at all, because he has some weaknesses to his game. 
but he's just absolutely like indisputably world class at a handful of things and they happen to be the things that allow you to score goals like the, the things that gives you the best chance to score goals are you know he's completely maxed out in so he is a very strange player in that regard yeah, to be fair, at the age of twenty-two, you know, he's got he's got room for improvement. He'll be a, he'll be a different player. He'll, he'll, he'll maybe make it one day. He'll drop back to a six when he loses his pace, and he'll just be there, just well, knocking it about. <laughs> no, just, he was very diplomatic about that after the Felix stuff. He's asked what he could get better at, and he his stock answer is, "I can get better at everything." But then he had to think, and he thought about, "Yeah, I want to get better at providing chances for my teammates and and helping my teammates," which I'm sure is the answer Pep Guardiola wants him to give. Whether that is the thing he thinks about the most, I'm not entirely convinced, but he's saying the right things at least. It's funny you should say that because if you look at some of the goals that City score when they win like 1-0 or something like that and he doesn't score, he actually goes berserk. Like he, he's, as in in terms of celebrating, he's really passionate about his team winning. And it, I think that's such a great trait to have because for somebody that scores so many goals, you think there'd be some element of like selfishness that would exist within it. But it feels like he's part of the project. And also, sorry to just go back to it, so City were obviously very good yesterday, but Leipzig, what that, I cannot believe what I saw for 90 minutes from them. I was stunned. But speaking with, um, say, Julian Lescott and the like, the way that it was going for them was they wanted to press. But then if what, what thing City have is they have a couple of players who can break your press with something which you're not expecting. Say, wait, maybe it's Bernardo Silva that's supposed to play a ball inside, which you've been preparing for. But now he'll have a little bit of magic, a shoulder drop. Then the press is gone. Maybe it's the fact that John Stones would come into midfield. Well, now, like, who are you supposed to be with? And to sum up basically the nature of that press that they had, I think it was the Ilkay Gundogan goal. They've got City, have got the ball on the halfway line. And Pep Guardiola is screaming to pass the ball back to Edison. Usually, 99% of occasions, you're celebrating the fact the ball's gone back to the goalkeeper because you've won this little battle. But then he plays the ball to Bernardo Silva on the safe side. But now the left back's thinking, well, I can go and press Bernardo Silva but they're just stringing you along. He plays the ball down the channel to De Bruyne, who started running down the channel when he saw, when he saw uh, Bernardo Silva going down there, who then plays the ball short to Haaland because he knew what was coming next. And then before you know it, you've gone from having a team thinking we've done great because we've passed it back to the goalkeeper to all of a sudden the ball's in the back of your net and you don't even know how that's come to be. So I think for some sides, the idea of pressing them kind of plays into Man City's hands, especially if you don't necessarily have the sort of like athletes and intelligence that's required to really go toe-to-toe with them. And that game, as I say, from Leipzig, I expected a lot more. And they're not seven goals worse than Man City, but come the end of that game, like when Kevin De Bruyne scored, they had five people at the back and he still managed to get a shot away for free when you're already 6-0 down. Like that was such a bad day for them. And as uh, the guy said, I think there'll be more, they'd, they'd happily take that one back if they could, because it's probably the worst version we'll see ever. The thing, uh, first of all, Leipzig had already um, shipped six, isn't it? Uh, last time they had met um, Manchester City. Uh, I think the, the reason why we say maybe they're not as good as they, they have been is because of the inconsistency. We we haven't seen this City all, all of the time this season. We've seen moments when they have actually been huffing and puffing and not looked too inspired or too up for it or whatever. And And when the stars didn't align for them as they did yesterday, because that's a thing that we have to add, is that the first penalty is a joke. The second goal could have been disallowed for a foul on the keeper. On another day, it could have happened. There were also some, actually, if you can believe it, despite the fact they won 7-0, there were some moments where they looked a little bit iffy at the back. Edison had an interesting game, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the decision, by the way, that's another decision when he flattens out the, the Leipzig player 40 yards from goal. How it's not a foul is mad anyway, but yeah, carry on. It's extraordinary. No, but what I mean by that is that what we're seeing, we saw... Um, 
in, in, in an inconsistent, what has been for them, <laughs> for them, an inconsistent season, we saw them at the apex yesterday night. And for many reasons, because of, of the nature of the opponent, the level of the opponent of the day, the fact that it was the second keeper w- who was in the Leipzig goal and who will not, is not about to forget his performance. The fact that every, you know, you, you can carry on like that. So there are elements, which means that every time you've got a score like this, a 7-0, just like Liverpool against Manchester United, by the way, um, when you've got that, there are always special elements. Now, it, the thing is that, are they going to be able to reproduce this kind of performance in the latter stages of the Champions League? And this is where you will be able to say, well, yes, actually, they were as good as they've always been, or actually, no, what, you know what, they're, they're a little bit too inconsistent to actually reach the kind of level that Pep Guardiola wants for them. Matthew says, Max, you weren't as cross when someone stole your Subaru, but the nonsense handball law has just made you incredibly angry. I hope you're happy, IFAB. Yeah, I tweeted in incandescent rage at that penalty. Um, James says, was the penalty awarded in the City game the shittest penalty awarded ever? I mean, it's a big shout, isn't it? And I don't want to go over the handball laws again, Lars. And Thank God. But, I, but I, you know, thank goodness. But I just, it's just how are we here? How have we got to this place where... That is even, that's even a debate that anyone anywhere is going, I think that might be a penalty. It's just mind, it is mind numbing. It's, it's just actually infuriating that lawmakers have, and we are, I'm sure we are, everyone is to blame in some small way, have got to a place where that is a penalty. Yeah, no, I, you are kind of showing up that you don't spend a lot of hours watching football from the European leagues because they have been much more strict on handballs like that. Especially Serie A went through a phase of just any touch in the box is a penalty. It was mad uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I, I I don't like it myself. Uh, I think it's a nonsense. I think awarding the opponent an 80% chance of a goal for what happened there just doesn't make sense, uh, whether it's the supposed spirit of the law or whether it's just logic. I mean, it, it doesn't. It, it really tilts games in such a big way. I think on the night it didn't matter because Fifth City was so much better in every depart- department. But no, it is a nonsense, and uh, it's something that should be done to address this. There's not, there's not much more you can say about it. Hmm. I mean, we all agree. I don't know if you have anything to add, David. I, mean, I just can't imagine how you would have... You must be glad you're retired, right? With that penalty, I reckon Henrik's probably didn't even know that the ball had touched his arm at all. Yeah. So to then have a penalty given against you, the ref to run over and basically point at you and say, you did this, it's, it's stupid, and... Like, even when you see the the slow motion replay, it's like, what? You know what I mean? And obviously, from a City persuasion, they'll take it. But nobody really wants to see handballs given for that. Firstly, he's like, I don't know, 20 centimeters away from him. The ball might have touched his arm and he knew about it. But what what do you want him to do? And I'm, you know, I, I'm obviously very pro defender, as you can imagine. I sometimes wonder, like, do people genuinely think defenders are out there trying to save shots with their arms whenever possible? Mm. You think mm. they're just jumping up in the air thinking, right, the best way to deal with this motion now is to just stop it. Like, watch a replay back at full speed and then think to yourself, have they got enough time to do something? Because 90% of the time, the answer would be no. But when you slow it down, it's like, well, you see, you can see he could definitely have done this. No, he couldn't. Like, the game's a lot quicker than, say, we make a 
we may believe sometimes. Pep afterwards said, I'm a failure in the Champions League. I'm sorry, I'm going to explain a secret. Even if we win this Champions League or three in a row, I will be a failure. I have three idols in my life, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods and Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts came to England a few years ago in the period when Man United were not good. We were better and she came to Manchester United. She didn't come to see us. Even if I win the Champions League, it cannot make up for Julia Roberts not coming to see us. Philip, is this Pep being funny is this funny? I think it's probably Pep's idea of being funny. Right. And is it funny? <laughs> no. No. I Not really, no. 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 But I just I wanted to check with somebody uh, who's, uh, you know. Just it a, could be one of those things. Sometimes press conferences are really strange environments. And sometimes things that get mm. said in the press conference feel really funny in the room. Right. And yeah, then when true. you write it up or show it, a recording of it, it's just that wasn't actually funny. That, well, that seems that's to true. Because there's a strange nervous energy at press conferences. Well, obviously, the, and the easiest audiences, you know, the easiest rooms to, to get a laugh are footballers' press conferences, if the phone rings, or the crowd at centre court when like a pigeon acts exactly how a pigeon would act. And it is like, they are like, fuck me, this is hilarious, isn't it? Um, anyway, that'll do for uh, part one. Uh, part two, we'll look at uh, Inter getting past Porto, uh, look ahead to tonight's games in the Champions League and a uh, bit of other stuff too. Uh, welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Friend of the pod, Paul Watson, is uh, helping organise the Micro Cup, the first ever futsal tournament for the Federated States of Micronesia and its national championship. It's one of only six sovereign states not part of a FIFA confederation. To help raise funds for the tournament, they've released a set of unique shirts for the competing teams made by Stings with a Z. Um, uh, go to Paul's Twitter uh, at Paul underscore C underscore Watson. I'll retweet it all. He's a lovely bloke and he does good things uh, with people who don't necessarily have everything in the game of football. Uh, to Portugal then, Philippe. Yeah, you had both games on with no commentary. I mean, there wasn't a lot to say about this game until the the 94th minute, I thought. Bowser's after an obligatory last 16 exit. A Porto just PSG with less faffing. Uh, Rick says, how on earth did Inter survive that last seven minutes of added time? It was, that injury time was brilliant, wasn't it? Absolutely fantastic, yeah. I mean, the game was not uninteresting, but it really felt like when you had both games that you were watching uh, one competition uh, at you know level one, and then you were watching like the third division. I, I mm. might be a little bit harsh. On, no, on it was the sa- exactly the same last week when you had yeah. Bayern PSG on one, and then Spurs Milan just stinking it out, and you're going, "This can't be the same competition." I mean, it was. I think it was better than Spurs Milan. But it was not very difficult to be absolutely no, honest. No, I agree. And, uh, and and you could find loads of things to admire in the way that Inter went about their business, and uh, they're not the greatest team. You know, Edin Dzeko is still in there. I, every time I see him, you know, there's always this reflex, how old is he? Uh, but he's still <laughs> there. He's still playing. Um, and yes, it, it, it went absolutely bonkers in, in added time. And to be honest, I, I should watch it again at, uh, at, at actual speed, actually, Nedum, uh, to, to understand what the hell happened there, in particular with this, uh, with this struck that would work twice in quick succession. Uh, this unbelievable, you know, pinball game there was there. But one thing I would say is that the hero of, of the night was Onana, without, without a doubt. And which is, which surprise, which will surprise a few people because he has his critics, 
uh, he's actually been taken out of the Cameroon team, if you can believe it. Uh, but yesterday he was absolutely supreme. And um, I mean, I, as he was by the way in the first leg, if they are in the quarters, it's thanks to him, really. Uh, there were, I've, I counted three great stops in the first leg and five last night and difficult ones. Uh, we've got, he's, you know, he's a unit, but he's incredibly quick on his line. And he's got this capacity of, of being able to, uh, I don't know, people should fall to the ground because of gravity at the same speed, right? But no, he seems to fall more quickly than others. He has this capacity <laughs> of just of just being able to almost like being attracted by the ground as if it was some kind of giant Unana magnet. And, and then... And, well, I guess, and sorry, I guess, Philippe, I guess goalkeepers aren't just using gravity, are they? They, they aren't just like four, they're not just like, they're not like trees being cut down. They are like Gra projecting in, themselves in, down. Yeah, there's probably a formula and equation. It's gravity plus inertia plus the Onana factor, which is, of course, yeah. the unknown, the unknown in the equation. And he was absolutely magnificent. Uh, this being said, from, about the game itself, I mean, Porto are not quite as good as they have been in past seasons. Uh, watching it and comparing it what what we saw from Benfica, you can understand why they're way, way behind Benfica in the Primera Liga. Uh, Inter, well done to them for being in the quarters. And and, and extraordinarily, we, we're going to have the two teams from Milan, you know, among the last eight in the Champions League, which hasn't happened for quite a while. And we yeah, were wondering since how and since, since when. And fortunately, of course, Nicky was there to help us. Yeah, oh five, oh six. I think when they were both in the quarterfinals. Um, I mean, a Milan derby quarterfinal would last be tremendous, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be a rare exception to the rule that you don't want teams from the same country, because usually that's a bit. So, yeah, that's not what we do this tournament for. But, but but I do think obviously that has a sort of nostalgia element to it. And I uh, know, yeah, I would enjoy that. Though I would siege Milan to to get better, so that watching them. I mean, maybe that was just Tottenham. Uh, sucking all the joy out of that game but you were right oh my god that was so i was almost like i was i was ill at the time i was probably would have gone to the game if i wasn't sick like i had the covid uh, and then i was at home thinking actually you know what this virus might have done me a solid hit because that that would have i was really glad i didn't spend money on that well done to inter they are through um uh inter ceo beppe marotta has confirmed lukaku will return to chelsea when his loan deal, deal expires at the end of the season such another player that Chelsea have, I guess. But, but you, I mean, you, could you imagine them reintegrating him, Philippe? I mean, they do arguably need a number nine, don't they? Listen, I'm I'm a great fan of Romelu Lukaku, and um, I I I do think he would be a plus. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's that's what I believe. But that's me. I mean, I mean, I'm in a Rom fan club, so maybe that's not me who you should ask the question to. Do you get a, Do you get a badge? And what else do you get for joining the? Romelu Lukaku fan club criticism. I haven't. <laughs> yeah, you get, yeah. Unlisten, unfair, you get unfair criticism, and uh, you know, uh, inaccurate discussions about your first touch. I imagine. Anyway, let's look at. Um, also, you need a good abbreviation, like the Sebastian Allaire is terrific uh, society. Yeah, of course uh, you do. Is the good one? I mean, I guess with Lukaku, the question is always which version of him you get. Because if you could get the Lukaku who played for Inter a couple of years ago, who was you know who looked sharp, who was you know he was in, who was in good nick, who was moving really well, that player Chelsea could really use. But you can't really escape the fact that for the last eighteen months he hasn't looked or been that player. Yeah, and look, Jekko's keeping out of the side at the moment, so that that tells you something, I guess. Tonight, uh, Liverpool go to the Bernabeu. Uh, they are five-two down. No Jordan Henderson, who's not well. No Bacetic. 
Um, so tricky in the middle of the park for them. They will have got hope, Nadem, from that Manchester United win. Less so from the Bournemouth defeat. They couldn't. They couldn't, could they? If, do you know what? I think this is feels like a really obvious point. If it was the other way around and they were playing at Anfield with a three-goal deficit, I'd feel a little bit more confident that they could do it. But the fact that they're three goals down to, you know, the number one team in European history, essentially, it, it's going to be tough. But I think for them, it's just little by little. Like, can they, say, have a lead in the first half? Can they maybe be in a position whereby they've got a two-goal lead with 15 minutes to go or something? And from there, you know, chaos is going to reign. As soon as you see that clock ticking down, you, you know, you'll go for it. And who knows what that what that could bring, but... I think Liverpool's issue really this season has just been the way they've been shipping some of those goals. And when you think about who they're playing against and where they're playing, you know, one goal could really deflate the whole night against them. And that's the thing that's sort of the nagging doubt in my mind because they're more than capable of scoring. But I don't know, it'll be interesting to see their approach there. And I think it could be a great game, but I think just as an individual game, as opposed to a two-legged tie as such, because I think at the end of the day for Real Madrid, they won't want to lose at home, but, but Liverpool want to win that game as well. But it feels like the tie is done and the damage is done. Because, you know, if you concede five goals at home in the Champions League, the chances of you getting through on the other side are usually very slim, you could say. It, it, just tactically, it's really awkward because they have to push up and go for it. Then Real Madrid have got, like, Vinicius Jr. running at them on the counter. And Modric and Cross to sort of plunk balls over the top for him. Like, if you're a defender, that's not fun. Like, if you're in a position where you have to go up, up the field. So, very, very awkward sort of a tactical setup for Liverpool, I think. I, I was going to say, what, what is being asked of them is to basically do what Barcelona did to PSG. Uh, but Real Madrid is not quite PSG. <laughs> uh, and to replicate what happened in Istanbul in the second half. And then some. Uh, so the probabilities of that happening are, are basically close to zero so what for me when I listen to the coaches speak about say deficits is the fact they just say it's little by little if Liverpool take the lead the confidence goes up just a little bit you know if they go a goal down it's a different conversation altogether but say they take the lead say it's 1-0 after the after the first half's complete you start the second half you're applying pressure applying pressure because this is not a million miles away from, say, when Chelsea played Real Madrid last season. Real Madrid ended mm. up going through. But for a lot of that game, Chelsea were on top and they were just taking it little by little. And then again, there was that goal from Madrid which just sort of deflated the game itself for them. But you can, you can do it because it's not, in my mind, I wouldn't be thinking about scoring four to get through. I'd be thinking about just one goal at a time. And like I say, if Liverpool have somehow got a two-goal lead, with 15 minutes to go, I bet you you pay more attention to that game itself oh, because the carriage so is just, it's just dangling there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas if the, if it's like, if it's 2-2 or something, then yeah, it's not as interesting. But if they can find a way to do it and it doesn't have to be straight away, I think that's the difference because then if you then hit them late, that's the one that swings all the momentum. So I'm, I'm tuning in because you, you never know. But then I say, yeah. when Ramsey is like, half-time, I'll, t- I'll turn off. Yeah, yeah it feels like... If any team can do it, Liverpool, like historically, nostalgically, Liverpool can do it. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe there are other teams that have had as many great comebacks. It just feels quite Liverpool. Or maybe they're just fans talk about their comebacks more than other clubs do. I don't know. Real Madrid have lost by three goals at home in the Champions League in the past. Um, 
to CSK Moscow, if you can believe it. Right. You know, and, but, and Liverpool have done it to Angelotti, haven't they? Liverpool have done it to Spanish opposition. Anyway, this could all be complete. No, don't play this back to us, as Leonard says, when Real win 2-0. Uh, Napoli are 2-0 up on Eintracht Frankfurt as well. I mean, that would be an extraordinary turnaround as well, given how brilliant Napoli are at the moment. And we will uh, uh, look back at those two games tomorrow. In the Premier League tomorrow, Brighton play Palace, who are really struggling, aren't they, uh, at the moment? Just, you know, just stuck in 12th somehow, but you feel they could lose one game and go down to 20th. That's how ridiculous the, the Premier League is. And Brian playing very well. Um, Southampton played Brentford too. Uh, Melissa Reddy on Sky reporting that Harry Kane, uh, Spurs are not going to sell him this summer. So that could mean he could sign a deal with someone else in January, I think. Um, Manchester United really want him, but don't want a transfer saga. And you can imagine, Lars, that would be a transfer I saga. Think that, well, I mean, yeah. I mean- if you want to avoid a transfer saga, trying to sign Harry Kane is is not it. And, and, I, and I think well, we don't know how much money would hypothetically be offered, but the, the extent to which he's kind of been propping up Tottenham the last couple of seasons mean, I, I think you can make a justification for turning down almost any fee, just because having him one more season increases your chances, for instance, of making the top four next season by, by that much. That... that you have to go really high on the money scale for it to be really worth them considering selling, even if he doesn't sign a new contract. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, I was thinking about this, you know, the, the, the sort of bleak sight, and I've mentioned it before of Harry Kane, you know, applauding his fans, trudging around the pitch after another exit from a tournament or losing a cup final or whatever. And just think, you know, at some point, people won't want Harry Kane, better teams won't want Harry Kane. And does then, in like five years, does he sign for... I don't know, Crystal Palace, like, could you like, or, you know, like a sort of mid to bottom level Premier League team. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine him, you know, cause he really like would, I think he likes football and I think he'd carry on playing football, but I just, I just can't imagine that Harry Kane on the slide, but you know, that debate, should he still start for England? Because there's some 16 year old now who'll be brilliant in three or four years. I don't know. Maybe I was just, I hope he's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Edit it out. You get rid of it. Get rid of it. It yeah. never happened. Anyway, anyway. Um, Daniel says, you've all, t- uh, a bit of EFL last night. He says, you talked so much about the EFL. Haven't said a word about Millwall all season. Dark horse to the promotion battle. Incredible form. Certainly more interesting than Haaland scoring five. That's probably the only American Millwall fan I'm hurt. Yeah. A good win for you yesterday against Swansea. Uh, into the playoff spots and uh, like having a fantastic season. Ooh, Gary Rowett, as we used to cleverly sing uh, on the Abbey Terraces when he was uh, a rangy uh, right winger. Uh, missed opportunity for Middlesbrough, who were held at home by Stoke, uh, now three points behind second place Sheffield United, who've played a game more. Chris Wilder's first win as Watford Bosch. That should get him a stay of execution. Um, 3-0 win over Birmingham City and... Uh, the hacker not helping Gareth Ainsworth and QPR. Big win for Mick McCarthy. Blackpool six, QPR one. Uh, a wild result there. Um, anyway, that'll do for part two. What are you shaking your head at? Just QPR being a very very stinky team. Yeah, but you know, I I saw when Gareth Ainsworth got them to do the hacker, and the difference between the man went in and said, "Look, he sort of did it," and the players were going, "This is all a bit of shit." And by the end, they were just belting it out and it was absolutely tremendous let, doesn't mean they'll yeah let me be clear season. i am not blaming the hacker <laughs> no well, you don't have to uh that'll do for part two uh part three um we'll update you on the gary lineker scenario if you didn't know you'll find out in just a second if he'll be presenting match of the day on saturday
Uh, welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, regarding Gary Lineker, who, uh, as you remember, uh, uh, he, they said he was going to be back on Match of the Day uh, just after we stopped recording. Jez, Jez says, could you just record a generic three-minute shock reaction to, quote, the thing that just happened and how it's going to affect you, everyone you know, and everyone, and then put it on the end of all episodes? Then you'll always be ahead of the game. It's a good idea. I should just have a voice note going for the top of each pod. Uh, so Lineker's going to return to Match of the Day this weekend. Um, he made this statement on Twitter going after a surreal few days. I'm delighted we've navigated a way through this. I want to thank you for all the incredible support, particularly my colleagues at BBC Sport for the remarkable show of solidarity. Football's a team game, but their backing was overwhelming. I've been presenting sport on the BBC for almost three decades. I'm immeasurably proud to work with the best and fairest broadcaster in the world. Cannot wait to get back in the MOTD chair on Saturday. A final thought, however difficult the last few days have been, it simply doesn't compare to having to flee your home from persecution or war to seek refuge in a land far away. It's heartwarming to have seen the empathy towards their plight from so many of you. We remain a country of predominantly tolerant, welcoming and generous people. Thank you. Um, Tim Davey, the BBC's Director General, uh, made a statement as well. Everyone recognises this has been a difficult period for staff, contributors, presenters, and most importantly, our audiences. I apologise for this. The potential confusion caused by the grey areas of the BBC's social media guidance that was introduced in 2020 is recognised. I want to get matters resolved and our sport content back on air. Impartiality is important to the BBC. It's also important to the public. The BBC has a commitment to impartiality in its charter and a commitment to freedom of expression. That is a difficult balancing act to get right, where people are subject to different contracts and on-air positions and with different audience and social media profiles. The BBC's social media guidance is designed to help manage these sometimes difficult challenges. And I'm aware there is a need to ensure that the guidance is up to this task. It should be clear, proportionate and appropriate. We are announcing a review led by an independent expert reporting to the BBC on its existing social media guidance with a particular focus on how it applies to freelancers outside news and current affairs. The BBC and myself are aware that Gary is in favour of such a review. May I put, point you in the direction of David Squire's absolutely brilliant cartoon, as you would imagine, on this subject. Philippe, your thoughts? I don't have any thoughts to add to that. <laughs> oh, really? You're, are you staying, you're staying impartial? I'm, I'm a former BBC um, staffer myself, so mm -hmm. I know. Me too. Yeah. I, in, uh, yeah. Well, we know it, the knots that we've got to tie ourselves in at some, some points. The fact that there is a review is to be uh, to be welcome. Um, no, I mean, I, I I could speak for three hours about it, but I don't think that it would necessarily. Um, I, I think it might be a breach of impartiality if I said what I really thought about what's happened. So I'd rather not. If you see were, what you I mean. on the were you on the road to Naden? I was, yeah. I was supposed to be um, on the radio on a Sunday, and it was very close to happening. And in some ways, I was glad that it didn't, because then at one o'clock there was an announcement there was no match of the day too. So that would have looked fun if you've just been on air. But I think one thing yeah. to say from my perspective, because I, like obviously I've not been a full-time BBC staffer, but it's interesting to see the dynamic within the business as such, or the company as such. And Gary saying thanks for the support. I myself, like lots of others, weren't necessarily showing solidarity with him, but with other people who you're connected to, who are linked to somebody else, who's linked to somebody else. Because most of us, we don't know Gary Lineker like that. And mm. the way the thing started, not everybody fully believes in that. Some of the other stuff around it, again, it's, it's not just as simple as everybody gathering around to protect Gary Lineker. And I think people need to know that because, mm. as I say, it's far more complex than it seems or the way it's being, it's being sort of spoken about by certain people. 
but in some mm. ways, you know, this is this is how they're going to treat it going forward. And I think lots of people did miss match of the day and the BBC's coverage as well. But then lots of other people really enjoyed the car crash that was the BBC for three days. So um, mm. unfortunately, that's just the way it goes. Yeah, that's an interesting point, which is quite boring, probably for people who don't work in the industry is that there is a difference between being freelance and being staff. And so some staff people had to go to work because they don't have the same, what well, they're contractually obliged, right? Whereas freelancers have a bit more freedom to say, actually, I'm, I'm not in today. You don't work, you don't get paid if you're a freelancer and all those things would have made it a more complex uh, situation. Uh, Manchester United's Alejandro Garnacho will be out for several weeks with an ankle ligament injury sustained via a tackle from Carl Walker-Peters during the goalless draw on Sunday. Depressingly, racially offensive comments were made on an Instagram post Walker-Peters posted after the game. Uh, he said, the racial abuse I received isn't something that no player or person should ever have to experience. We need to be better. And this is bigger than just football. More needs to be done to prevent this from happening time and time again. Thank you to everyone who's sent messages of support since. I appreciate each and every one of you. It would never be my intention to injure a fellow professional. Um, I wish you, Garnacho, a speedy recovery. I hope to see you back in action as soon as possible. Uh, Southampton statement read, in February 2021, the club made a statement about one of our young players receiving abhorrent racial abuse following a match against Manchester United. More than two years on, we find ourselves in exactly the same position, disgusted and disappointed in the behaviour of those online who lower themselves to abusing players for the colour of their skin. What's equally frustrating is the lack of meaningful action in these two years from the social media platforms who allow such hatred to breed and fester. We've forwarded the messages concerned to Hampshire Police in keeping with our normal processes when dealing with these cases. We've also reported these posts to the social media platforms involved. We can only hope that they finally pay attention to what continues to be a major problem and that we do not find ourselves repeating these words in another two years' time. That was quite a strong statement from Southampton, specifically against the social media companies. Um, uh, a 24-year-old man, um, meanwhile, who racially abused Ivan Tony on social media has been banned from every football stadium in the UK. The ruling is the first to be issued under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act of 2022. The banning order means the man cannot attend matches in the top five tiers of English football, as well as England home and away matches. Uh, the legislation allowed banning orders to be issued for online hate crimes, including racism. Which, Philippe, is a good thing. I mean, it's enacting it is difficult. Enforcing that is difficult. It's not like every ground will have a picture of this guy. Maybe they will, but um, at least um, no, that I, looks I, like I, the strongest... That looks like the strongest sentence I can remember. Actually, the, the, those banning orders are enforced very strictly, uh, Max, to, to be honest. I, I don't think that this person uh, will will find it easy to get into uh, into a ground. Actually, they, they are enforced uh, quite okay, that's well. Good. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. See, with the, with the banning orders, this is, it is it's obviously in theory like a big punishment, but does the person go to games every week anyway? Yeah. Sometimes, like, is that actually taking something away from someone or is it something that feels like it's going to stop them from being in an, in the stadium. But like, I don't know the full story. So where was the abuse coming from? Was he on the touchline screaming at someone? And has he got a history of that? Or is it something that was away from the stadium anyway? It was on social media. Yeah, it was so, you know, you're right. It could be a keyboard warrior who doesn't go to any football matches at all. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Because I think a lot of these people who I see who throw out some of the abuse, like they're not people who are fully engaged with football culture as such, who are going to the matches themselves and, you know, cheering and so on and so forth. But they sort of live their football culture through the internet. And it's also frustrating for me when if say like Garnacho, getting injured because somebody's tackled him. It's like, okay, that's checked two boxes so you know what's coming next. Mm. So even though we can have things in play which we believe will be making a difference after the event, you still kind of know when the event's going to come. And that's the thing that 
is most disappointing to me because I don't see how that changes because human behavior itself, you know, at times it can be really predictable and those people will still continue to do it and they might take their punishment, but like it's still going to happen and they're not going to be, the next person is not going to be put off because that's their instinct to do that because from them, you know, the sort of fandom that they have of players and teams, it just, it gets to the point where it's just, it's just ludicrous. Like you're not, you, this person's not Garnacho's like brother or sister or parent or someone like that, but they're getting so angry to the point where they're looking to find a way to go and abuse the guy that somehow got somebody like injured. This is sorry. I'm rambling a little bit. It's just because no, no, I, no, I, no, it's, it's, it's like, I feel really strongly about it and I find some of those people pathetic, but I also don't see how it changes because we've arrived in this moment. I know some of this legislation and stuff that comes in after the event, it can appear strong, but realistically, does it change the culture in terms of the, the way the abuse happens? And I, and I don't think it does. And unfortunately, I think the culture is kind of set in stone due to the way that social media is and the accessibility that comes with it. I don't know enough about how you would even combat that. But the social media companies surely have to be more responsible for what happens on their platforms. There is some value, I think, to just sending a very clear message that as far as football as a sport, as an industry is concerned, you're just not welcome anywhere ever if this is how you behave. And people being, uh, in this case, named and shamed, and it, it just a clear message that you, football is a space where you are simply not welcome if this is, this is in your head, I think it's probably a good thing. So just a final point, this is me just like being the old man shouting at the clouds and whatever, yeah. You know, we're talking about abuse at stadiums and the abuse we're talking about, you know, the racist, sexist, that type of abuse is, is very, very strong. But then because it's football, we're okay with everybody just piling on a referee. Or like, say when someone goes to take a throw and you're throwing up two fingers, saying you're a this, you're a that, you know, because that's like being a good fan. It, it's fine, but then it's not fine. You know, mm. it's one of those things which we just prepare to say, okay, that's fair enough because you didn't call someone the N-word. But he did say every other word that's available to be said, which cannot be heard. And that's, again, one of those interesting bits about sort of like football coach when you take a step back and really look at it. Because some of the... Things that we like, we hear it ourselves. We look, you're watching a game and you can just hear in the background some of the stuff that's being said. You're like, wow, that's quite strong. Or somebody goes to take a corner and you've got like people from all generations standing up, giving it, oh, you're a this, you're a that, you're a whatever, so on and so forth. The best example I can give to describe it is a pitch invasion is great when you've won and you look at it yeah. on TV and it's great. Now imagine being the away team, being on the field mm. and having thousands of people right there next to you and, and they're saying things, they're doing things, they're pushing you and so on and so forth. Because when it's on TV and it's like that someone's made it to like a playoff final, oh, incredible scenes at the stadium, the fans, they're raising the players aloft, but there's a lot of other stuff that's happened on the field which won't get covered. But then lo and behold, if something gets caught on camera, it's like, oh, these scenes are a disgrace. Well, the starting point is the pitch invasion. Yeah, which we're mostly all right with as long as there's yeah. a team that's at home and as long as they've won because sometimes if the team had lost and they're in crisis and you see them coming onto the field oh it's a huge protest it's yeah. just so bad for the football club but it's essentially the same thing is it not? Completely but you know I've been part of pitch invasions and like my instinct wasn't to find the opposition left back and chin him it was just to sort of jump up and down on the pitch a bit but no I mean all your points are completely valid Alan says with the announcement of a 104 game World Cup uh, for 2026, on top of an expanded Champions League in 2024, a four-team Italian Super Cup, 
Um, a World Club Cup new thing. Is it possible there will be infinite football by the time 2030 rolls around? Chris says 104 brackets, 104 close brackets games, a minimum of 9,360 minutes, which is six and a half days of football. The next World Cup will require a week of my time to watch. Philippe. Oh, where do you start? Um, are you, one thing as well. That- so this is, okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what we'll start is. They were going to have groups of three. They realised in this World Cup that groups of four are good, but there are more teams. There's 48 teams. So instead of fewer games, they're going to be the more games because they're going to sit with groups of four, which is probably the lesser of two evils in terms of a competition. Um, so that's 44 more matches than in Qatar. FIFA said his decision to ditch the three-group format had come after, quote, a thorough review that considered sporting integrity, player welfare, team travel, commercial and sporting attractiveness, as well as team and fan experience. Philippe? Yeah, well, as I said, where do you start? First of all, there's been no consultation with stakeholders uh, in this decision, uh, which has been announced uh, by FIFA at its Congress in Kigali. Uh, in Rwanda, uh, where Janine Fantineau will be uh, re-elected, re-crowned tomorrow as FIFA president for another term. Uh, Praise the king. Position. Yeah. And um, there's been no consultation, uh, which is not surprising. There's certainly, I mean, which is why you have reactions from organizations like FIFPRO are not happy at all about it. Uh, the only reason why this is happening is got nothing to do uh, for the good of the game, the good of the players, the good of everything. It's all about money, uh, and it's about money, it's about power. Um, one of the, uh, Infantino got a standing ovation and people clapping and getting berserk with, with happiness when he said that he was expecting a revenue of $10 billion for the next uh, four year period, which is basically linked to the expansion of the World Cup. Uh, and to uh, and to the other competitions, uh, this is one way that he can keep everybody on board in terms because the member associations, many of which totally depend on on FIFA to survive, um, d- d- so they will say, "Oh, more money! That's fantastic!" Um, it's gigantism. Um, it's it's insane. Um, I I don't know where to start. Again, I don't know where to start with it. It's it makes no sense from the sporting point of view. Oh, we should ask by, add, by the way, that the Super Coppa Italia with four teams, uh, four of the next six editions will be staged in, guess where? Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's, it's gigantism. It's what is killing the Olympics. It's what is killing football. One of the many things which is killing football. Uh, what can I say? I, I feel totally powerless, and I think this is what perhaps is the is the, is the reason. The, 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 one of the main things behind this is that we feel powerless. I mm-hmm. think the players feel the players feel powerless. The fans feel powerless. Do we want 104 games rather than 80 or 84? No, not necessarily. Um, well, the good, what's the, the good point? News, what's is- the point of a competition where you only get rid of like a third of the teams? That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. The good news is that the year before the World Cup, there'll be an expanded Club World Cup. Yes. uh, With Chelsea and Real Madrid handed automatic qualification spots. Uh, The current format has seven teams. Uh, FIFA president Gianni Infantino revealed plans in December for an expanded 32-team tournament from June 2025. And then FIFA approved the proposal, shockingly. At its council meeting in Rwanda the, on Tuesday. They, they never discuss. Yeah, that's the, or the, or the other extraordinary thing is that these proposals, basically what's happening, there is a lab in Doha, which is where Jenny is living these days, uh, where they have all these great ideas about how we're going to make more cash. And then there is absolutely no discussion. There, there is supposedly a FIFA council 
And there are things like AGMs, like you would think, okay, we've got 211. Well, we don't have them all because some of them are suspended and so forth. We have most of the member associations on the planet are together for the uh, re-election, re-coronation of Jenny Infantino. Maybe that would be a good idea to talk. No, 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 no. Let's not talk. We've decided that. Now say yes. And if you say yes, you're a good boy and you will get your millions of dollars. And that's what's happening. My only question is how can we possibly do anything about it? And I feel myself, apart from trying to expose what these people are doing, totally powerless. And I would imagine that most, most people, starting with the players, feel exactly the same. Uh, the new format of the tournament will consist of eight groups of four, top two teams of each group going through to a knockout round. As the last two winners of the Champions League, Chelsea and Real Madrid, were guaranteed a spot in the tournament. Two more spots issued to the 2023 and 24 Champions League winners. Speaking at a press conference ahead of the World Cup final in December, Infantino said the expanded tournament would be, quote, like a World Cup. Um, now, but teams uh, just shouldn't go like full stop. There, there are too many games in the calendar already. No one asked them if they wanted this. The, the clubs haven't been represented or approved this in any kind. They should just not turn up. This is nonsense. Uh, Philippe, you had a couple of other important, any other businesses that I suspect no other podcast is discussing. Well, one of the things is, I'll come to that because I've just found out about it, is this interview that Alexander Ceferin uh, d- did with Gary Neville uh, on a, a YouTube channel called The Overlap, in which he said, and I'm quoting him, so no prime with lawyers here, um, talking about multi-club ownership. Um, we've had five or six owners of clubs who want to buy another club. We have to see what to do. Uh, the options are that they stays like that or that we allow them to play in the same competition. So this is this is it. UEFA is basically, that's the way I read it. UEFA is giving in to this idea of MCU, multi-club ownership, which is crazy, uh, again, uh, which is a huge threat for the integrity of the game and as well for competitiveness in football, elite football in Europe. But UEFA was seen as a bastion of resistance against that. I think we can put that safely aside and that if Ratcliffe and Jassim wanted by Manchester United and it's not going to be a problem, even though these people might own or the people that they are standing for might own two or three clubs who are taking part in the same competition. It's disgraceful, but it's going to happen. And the other thing I wanted to uh, to touch upon, but it's something perhaps we can just refer you know, our, our listeners to it. Uh, as, as you're aware, I, I've been doing with um, some colleagues of mine for Yosima, like a two-year-long investigation into uh, gambling and uh, and football. But... We have found out a lot about it. So I would say if you want to know more about this question, which for me is super important, uh, go to the Yosimar football website and uh, you'll have plenty of reading matter. And believe me, make sure that you have got a soft carpet because your jaw is going to drop on the floor and you'll have to pick it up again. Arguably less important. The Premier League has announced a font change with revolutionary new numbers and letters coming in for 23-24. The competition has only changed fonts three times in the past 30 years of football. Apparently, the Premier League are going with, quote, a subtle evolution for their shirts. Avery Dennison, the designers, came up with a new font. They've increased the size on the back of the shirts by around 10%. So I guess that's from like 16 Point to 18 point, or I mean, hopefully bigger on a Premier League shirt. 386 to 400 point. Uh, though the new design isn't too much different, it's certainly noticeable in numbers such as the three. So look out for the number three next season. If you look closely, you can see the zigzag pattern of the branding within the numbers themselves. Wow. 
Um, so the big question before to end the pod is, what font would you choose? I'm a Proxima Nova man. Um, where, where are you going, Lars? Anyone for Times New Roman? I'm just really caught up in this phrase, revolutionary new numbers. Is it, I mean... Have we reached the point now with the Premier League that the existing numeral system is just not? We can't. Are they inventing new ones? Is it? Is this all to do with Aling Holland's scoring record? It's just. It's really messing up the. Oh, is it? Someone's. Well, someone. You know, the next signing for yeah for um, Bournemouth will have the squad number the square root of minus one. Yeah. What? Um. So I'm going Proxima Nova. Does anyone have any strong feelings about the font? that they would like to use. Yes, Nadam. Well, I don't have a feeling about the font as such, but I'm wondering how many years it will be before I can try and bring out one of my Premier League shirts and someone say it's fake because the font's so different. Yes, <laughs> I'm, good. I'm, from the, I'm from the old Premier League, yeah. Uh, back in back in my day, that's the way it I, used to work. I, I don't even know what the font... I mean, I... Maybe it's a new font. I don't know. But, you know, I, I thought, I mean, surely, what are you writing in, Philippe? Ariel? What are you in? Uh, Comic Korean Curry, New? What are you in? Uh, I'm, I'm Calibri. Your Calibri. Oh, yep. right. Okay. I don't even have that on my drop down menu. I mean, Pacifico oh, yes, would be do. nice. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> well, but when you're typing, I mean, you're. you're this, is the shittest, this is the shittest panto of all time, isn't it? But you're submitting this stuff to publications anyway. I just write in the one that comes up in the, in the writing application. Ah, well, you're very open-minded then, Lars. Uh, anyway. Why would you change it? What's the point? I quite like looking at Proxima Nova. I just like, it just, it just mm. I don't know where I chanced upon it. Just but, put it all in Comic Sans. Yeah, it's a bit jolly for me, that one, for serious things like letters and names. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that'll do. Uh, thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Nadam. Thank you very much. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you. Football Weekly was produced by George Cooper with Silas Gray, our executive producer with Max Sanderson. We'll be back tomorrow. 